Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine Kids time. If you have 5th, 6th, or 7th graders, you can go out that back door, Mr. Jeff stand, and he'll point you in the right direction there. We've got a great opportunity for our uh, mid-high-ish age kiddos as, as well. So uh, very exciting stuff. So if you've been with us for any period of time, you'd know that we uh, last January launched into a series that would be exploring the book of John verse by verse, chapter by chapter, theme by theme. We've kind of walked through that for uh, almost now coming up to uh, three quarters of a year, pushing a year, and uh, we made it to chapter uh, eight-ish, which is great, but we've taken a little break as we always do this time of year to kind of really reorient ourselves with who we're called to be and what it looks like for us. And it's sort of a season that's really important to us because coming up in November, November 21st-ish, we will be celebrating sort of our sixth birthday as a community. Um, And for those of you who've been with us for a long time, it it means something. For those of you that may be just coming for the first couple weeks, it may not mean as much. But it's a significant time nonetheless because 2017 begins to draw to a close. And in 2018, I begin to dream and think and uh, kind of about what God has for us. And we've been in this building now for about two years, and we're going to be talking about uh, this upcoming year, how we utilize our space better. We've got a 10, you know, we got all kinds of space in the back, 2,000 square feet back here that we want to redo and make open for more opportunities for kids and youth and things. And we just got a lot of dreams for 2018. And this is our time we begin to think about those. And we also begin to examine the church that we believe we're called to be. Are we, are we really following Christ in terms of a biblical picture of what it means to put our feet in the places that Jesus put his feet? And so we take this little break about this time of year. We reorient ourselves to our calling. And this little series that we've been on is we've really just been entitled More Than Enough. It comes straight from Philippians chapter 4. And the idea really is do we trust and believe, and we'll examine that this, this morning, we trust and believe that Jesus truly is more than enough, not just for us as a church, but for us as individuals. In the first week, we looked at the first few verses in Philippians uh, 4.10, and we talked about the difference in gospel contentment and circumstantial contentment and how you and I are called to live a life of contentment and not a contentment that says, hey, I'm just going to be okay with what life hands me, but a, a life that finds true and deep joy in the things that God gives, right? We really explored that that's God's call on our life, that he wants us to live in a place where we are content with him. We find peaceful satisfaction with who he is. And then last week, Brandon explored gospel relationships and talked about how the community is meant to be our expression of the gospel and that when we give ourselves to each other, we are fulfilling what it means to live in community and gospel community. And so he explored that quite a bit yesterday in the middle section of of that text in Philippians. And we're going to wrap it up this week by really exploring the idea of giving our lives and our resources and what happens when we do, when we truly give ourselves and when we truly give our resources away, what begins to happen. Now, through this entire series, I've kind of been telling you, and I say this every single year, it'd be the sixth year now, that I really have one singular goal when it comes to thinking about giving of our lives or our resources when it comes to this church. And it's really this, I want to create a, a culture here at the Vine Community Church of biblically-based, generous living that engages our hearts, our lives, and our resources. And that never changes. We're not looking just for you to pledge your money or just for you to say, hey, I want to give to this community. We are looking to become an authentically generous community that gives our lives away. That is my heartbeat, right? I am not interested in a single dollar that anybody has to give, right, until you give your life first to Jesus and then to each other. Biblically generous living that says, look, my life, my time, my family, my stuff, it all belongs to the Lord. I get in great privilege to be a steward of what God has given me. 
And when we begin to let that transform who we are, none of this belongs to us. The things I have or the things I think I have or even this building, it's just stuff and it belongs to Jesus. And we get to give it away. And that is the hallmark of the church that I want us to become. And we remind ourselves of that each year. And we're going to look at it through that lens of Philippians chapter 4, um, this, this little three-week series. And we're going to wrap that up today, and we're going to jump back into John for four more weeks, and then we're going to start Advent, which is really cool. And then all of a sudden, the, you know, the year is over, and we're just like that. So another year um, down. If you've got your Bible, I do want you to flip to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to go through uh, the last few verses, but I'm going to read the whole thing in context so you can see where we've come over the past two weeks as we explore this idea of trusting and believing that Jesus is more than enough. And it's a really powerful passage because I think a lot of us trust and believe that Jesus is enough or that he will help us get by but do we really believe in Jesus, the abundance, that, that Jesus will give us more, right? And that he is more than enough that I could ever wish for or dream of or imagine. And it's not going to come in the ways that you can uh, think. So if you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4. And we'll be in 10 through 20, but we're going to pay attention to 17 in the very end today. So let's take a moment and let's pray uh, before we open God's word. We'll ask him to teach us and reveal truth to us. And then we'll dive into it together. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that is timeless and that never ends. I thank you so much, God, that you speak to us directly through it. I thank you that it is your breath. I thank you, God, that you meet us, each one of us, exactly where we are, with exactly what you want us to hear and know. And I pray that you would reveal truth to us. Lord, we know that we cannot open your word and find truth in its pages. You tell us that your Holy Spirit is the revealer of all truth. And so, God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach our hearts. And any conviction or teaching that comes today, we would recognize this teaching or conviction from the Holy Spirit, and that would change how we think, how we live, and how we love. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to just teach you this morning, whatever that means for you. Whatever you need to do to just pause your life, just put it on pause for a moment and ask the Lord to teach your heart. Just, just do that for me. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds this morning is not about you or for your entertainment. Pray for somebody around you, even if you don't know their name. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified and exalted and lifted up. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So I'm going to read, just to keep us in context, Philippians 4.10 all the way through, but we're going to focus on 16, 17, 18, and 19 this morning. So that those of you that uh, have not been here or missed a week or maybe for the first time, you'll, you'll see the context of where we're coming from. This is what uh, Paul writes as he writes this letter to, Phil- to the church in Philippi, chapter 4, verse 10. <clears throat> I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you've had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. 
Yet it is good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your accounts. I have received in full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. Now I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you have sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, <clears throat> Paul had this incredibly special relationship with the Philippians. He loved that church. A lot of his letters that were written to other churches were written to kind of address specific theological or heretical issues. But the church in Philippi, he loved. And so he sent this letter really just as a a gratitude letter to tell them how much he cared about them and to tell them how much they mattered to him. And so he pours his heart out. And as he's closing this letter, he's basically thanking them. All right, Paul's writing this letter from house arrest in Rome. He's waiting at trial uh, to see Caesar. He's waiting to stand trial before Caesar. Those of you that were with us when we studied the book of Acts, you remember this how, is how Acts ended. Paul found himself under house arrest in Rome, waiting to stand trial before Caesar. And he's writing this letter from that house arrest to the Philippians. And he's expressing a couple of things to them. One, he's expressing how much he appreciates them because from the moment he met them in their early on acquaintance and started that church, they have looked after him. In fact, they were one of the only communities when he left Macedonia that took care of him in this manner of giving and receiving. And you give and I've received and I'm grateful. And even so again, when I was in Thessalonica and I was in struggle, you came to me more than once and you sent people to give me aid. And I'm so grateful. And he even says to them, I'm so grateful, but I don't want you to have pity on me. I want you to understand that I don't need it. I've found great joy in Christ, whether I have or I have not, but I'm really grateful. And he says, moreover, as we see this week, I've even received the gifts that you've sent from Epaphroditus, and I'm grateful for them. So they sent this guy named Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome to take care of Paul when they heard that he was in prison. Now, we don't know what they actually took. Could be clothing, could be money, could be whatever, but they sent it from Philippi, which, by, according to whatever route you want to go, was either 600 miles or 1,200 miles away from Rome. And they sent Epaphroditus on that journey, which would have taken six weeks to three months in order to just take Paul a gift, whatever that was, a sack of something. And Paul's grateful, and he's grateful. And he writes this letter to show them how grateful he is, and he's going to make four statements today about our lives when we give them away and our resources when we give them with day. He's going to make four promises or four statements that we can count on. And it's going to be true today even for us and how we live and think about giving our lives and resources away because he's saying God does these things when we give ourselves away. And the whole paragraph there is really about trusting and believing that God is more than enough. That he is more than enough for us. And this is what he says in verse 16. We'll start there. For even when I was in Thessalonica, right, he was struggling with Thessalonica, you sent aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what be credited to your account. So he says, so even back in the day, when I was in Thessalonica and struggling, you sent aid again and again, just as you sent aid to me now in Rome, right? Not that I needed it, because he's saying, look, I don't want you to have pity on me. I didn't need it. 
because God will sustain me, but I'm so grateful for it. And I'm looking for my own need, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. Now, this is a really interesting sort of mysterious statement because Paul says that their giving, he's looking for it to be credited to their account. What that means in this statement is this, when we give our lives and our resources, it matters to the Lord. Now, I know that sounds like a really simple statement, but I want you to think about it. When we give our lives and our resources, it matters to the Lord. Paul is looking for how their giving may be credited to their account. Now, this isn't some kind of holy tally sheet by which God keeps markers on whether or not we give and somehow it's going to matter whether we get into heaven or not. But at the end of the day, what Paul is saying is that how we give our lives and our resources actually matters to God in this sort of amazing, mysterious kind of way God knows and God remembers and God keeps account. Now, for those of you that grew up maybe like I did, you grew up in a church that had a pretty significant Sunday school system, you will kind of, your mind will wander exactly where my wandered to, which is the incredible biblical attendance system of the gold star. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with how this works. Those of you that have never been to a church like this, I'm going to walk you through the steps, and it's highly technical, so stay with me. Sunday school happened 52 weeks a year. There was not a Sunday that you took off, right? The way I grew up, it was there. If it fell on Christmas, you were there. And you would go, and your parents would drop you off at Sunday school, and whoever your teacher was, uh, he or she uh, would keep this incredibly important medium on poster board. And it was a grid of all 52 Sundays for the year with your name and then, you know, 52 slots across it. And in the beginning of class, they would take attendance. And if you were there, and don't come late because you're not going to get an accolade for that. But if you come on time, you get a gold star in the box for that Sunday. All right? For every Sunday that you made it, you got a gold star across there. The goal, of course, set by Jesus himself was to get to the end with gold stars. Now, there's one little hiccup in the church that I went to, and that is if you had a sitting still problem or you like to make comment on why Jesus' beard was long or whatever, which I heard, you got a red star that would then cover up your gold star, which at the end of the year would be subtracting from your total of actual attendance because apparently your day there did not count, right? At the end of the year, they would tally up those scores and they would write them in front of the whole, you know, on the big poster board, which child had the most gold stars, not counting the red stars that were subtracted. Either 52 times, you had 18, you're going to take that math. Some girl named Susie Sanders or something very similar always won, always. And at the end of the year, she would get to choose from a box, which is somehow always shaped like a treasure chest. And there were prizes in there, like you can soar on wings of Eagle's keychain for the seven-year-old that drove there. Or... The incredibly one-inch-by-one-inch Bible that miraculously had every word of the entire Bible on it that could only be read if you took it down to the University of Oklahoma with a microscope. But it was there. came on a keychain, too, for some odd reason. Those were your prize options. Now, if you moved here in July, well, that's going to get you jack squat because Jesus don't take no half years. You better start saving up for next year, Right? And so when I read this, and I was thinking through this sort of, and he's looking at what's credited to your account, what I'm thinking of is, man, does Jesus keep this kind of system? Well, that's one for Trev. Red star. Doesn't count. The answer to that is, of course, no. But I will tell you this, it matters to the Lord. 
somehow in God's incredible, amazing, mysterious way, how we give and what we give and how we do it with our lives matters to God. It just does. Paul says, I'm looking for what can be credited to you. And he's talking about them as followers of Christ to your account. I'm, I want you to see that your gift matters to the Lord. Even though I may not have desperately needed it because Jesus is enough for me, how you give your life and your resources matter. And for us, following Christ, that same principle is true. How we give our lives and our resources matters to the Lord. It just does. It just does. When we hold things for ourselves versus when we give them away, it matters to the Lord. Paul's very clear about that. So we can take that promise as our first sort of stepping off place, right? When we give our lives and our resources to the Lord, it matters. Look at verse 18. I have received, Paul says, full payment and even more, and I am now amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you've sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So he says, look, I'm in prison, but I am amply supplied because you have sent walking this guy by the name of Epaphroditus six weeks to three months all the way from Philippi here, and you have amply supplied me. Those gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, and they are pleasing to God. What Paul's saying there is that when we give our lives and our resources to the kingdom, and and it's an expression of worship. So when we give our lives and our resources to the kingdom of God, it is an expression of worship. He says that those gifts that I've received from Epaphroditus, they are acceptable, and they are a fragrant offering pleasing to God. Now this is going back to an Old Testament concept of a fragrant aroma when the people of Israel would make a sacrifice. Leviticus talks about it. There's a whole bunch of places that talk about it. But when the community would come together and they would make a burnt offering or a sacrifice to the Lord, and that sacrifice was done in the right heart and mentality, God would accept it, and he would say that it was a fragrant offering and it had a pleasing aroma. Not because the offering itself, but because the manner in which that offering was brought pleased God, and he accepted it. So when we give our lives and our resources, what Paul is saying, when we do that for the kingdom, right? When we do that for the kingdom, it is acceptable and it is an expression of worship. Now, there's a really important thing that we have to make note here, and that is this, that worship is a condition of our heart. It is not the activity in which we engage in. So we can all engage in worship by showing up here and singing songs and raising hands and have our lives and hearts completely out of it. And the Bible will tell us, and I'll show you in just a moment, that it is empty and void and worthless. We can give our lives and our resources away and do it with um, a broken heart or do it with frustration or do it unwillingly and not wanting to and feel like God is prying these things out of my hand. And that offering is not worship. In fact, God's going to tell us that it's detestable. Because the heart in our worship is what makes worship, worship, right? It's not about what we do, but about the heart which we bring it. Worship is a condition of our heart. Let me show you this, and you don't have to flip there. I'll just, I'll do it for us. But Isaiah chapter 1, the people of Israel have have turned their sort of worship into a, well, it's nothing more than a hollow expression of just rituals. And this is what God says to them. When you come to appear before me, this is in 112, who has asked you to do this? Trample my courts. 
Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, your new moon, your Sabbath, your convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands in prayer, I hide my face. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds and get them out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow. What God is telling through Isaiah, the Israelites, is that you have created an habitual act of worship that is detestable to me. See, it's not the medium by which their worship was not acceptable. It was the heart in which they brought it. The Israelites had turned worship into a hollow expression by which they engaged in a behavior because they were told to, but their hearts weren't in it. And they did all the things. They had the festivals, and they burned the incense, and they made the offerings, and God said it made them sick because the Israels brought it with a heart that wasn't in it. And so God says, stop doing it. Do what's right, right? Love justice. Fight for the oppressed. Love the fatherless and the widow. In other words, love the things that my heart pursues. When we give our lives and our resources and we do it for the kingdom, with our heart in it, it is pleasing and acceptable and that aroma is good. That's what Paul says. He looks at the Philippians and he says, the way you give pleases God. That you sent your stuff, right? And you remember, the Philippians were broke. They were poor. And they were living in a land that was ravaged by a civil war. And they gathered up whatever they had and they put it on the back of Epaphroditus and he walked six weeks to take it to Paul, who's in prison in Rome. And God says through Paul, he says, your offering is pleasing, acceptable to me. It's a fragrant aroma. It wasn't about what the Philippians gave. We don't even know what it was. Paul makes no mention of it. I mean, it could have been a sack of seeds. No one knows because it didn't matter. What mattered is the heart in which they offered it to the Lord. And Paul says, that's an expression of worship. You and I can show up here every day of our lives, right? You can show up here every single day. You can ask me to unlock the doors. You can come in here. You can show up on a Sunday. You can do all that. And if your heart is not engaged in the kingdom of God, engaged in the Lord, it's empty and detestable. It's the same thing with giving our lives and our resources. If you give begrudgingly, right? It's not an offering the Lord is desiring. He doesn't want it to feel like the church is prying the money out of your hands or that your neighbors are prying your time away from you. He wants you to readily give yourself away to the kingdom of God and that giving is pleasing and it's acceptable to the Lord. The reverse is garbage. This church does not want your offering if we're going to pry it out of you because you don't want to give it. It's not worship. It's just resources. We don't need it. What we want to be as a church is a group of people that is so biblically generous that we find it joyful to give our lives away. And when we give our lives away, our resources follow. It's not the other way around. I have zero desire for this church to give its resources and then decide to give its life. I don't care if you ever give a dollar. Give your heart to Jesus. Because when we give our lives away, everything else begins to follow because it, we see what matters. So Paul says that it matters. When we give our lives and our resources, it matters. He also says that when we give our lives and resources for the kingdom of God, right, it's an expression of worship. That means how you give yourself and your stuff is an expression of worship. And I dare you to ask yourself, what's the heart in which I give? 
What is the heart in which I give? Let's go on. So Paul goes on to say this. Oh, those are a fragrant offering. They're acceptable sacrifice. They're pleasing to God. Verse 19. And my God <clears throat> will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So you've got to understand. I mentioned this a second ago. The Philippians were broke. They had nothing. They literally were poor and they were persecuted. And their land was ravaged. And they gathered up whatever they had and they sent it to Paul. And Paul says, this offering, this expression is so pleasing to God that I want you to know something. My God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. When we give our lives and our resources, we can trust that God will meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now notice a couple things. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that God will give you a great return based on whatever you desire. He does not say that when you give your life or when you give your money, he's going to give you a return on that investment tenfold. He does not say that you just have enough faith and you give that $100, God will return it by making all of your wildest dreams come true. He does not promise a lie of a health and wealth gospel that says if you give, God will give back to you abundantly, financially, or health, or in other manners. That theology is bankrupt and it's a lie and it's prominent. Paul doesn't say anything about it. Most of us want that to be true. We want to believe that if I just give this last little bit, then God, in a miraculous way, will return that financial blessing upon me and I'm going to get a $10,000 check in the mail when I give 100 because that's what they tell me on TV. It's just not biblical. But notice what Paul does say. That when you give your lives and your resources, you can trust that God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, what are your needs? Who gets to define those? You? Let me give you the answer. No. God defines your needs. Because the way we define our needs is really broken. Right? We've got the, the wants and the needs and the desires and the longings, and they're all mixed up in this one giant mess. And so Paul says to the Philippians who were broken and had nothing, God will meet all of your needs. What does he say? According to what? According to his riches in Christ Jesus, his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, I find this incredibly powerful because I want God to meet my needs according to my definitions. Right? So when I give or when I put my life into something, I want that return to be based on what I think I need according to my own broken definitions of materialism and stuff and the lie that the world has shaped in me. But the promise that Paul makes is that he says, God will not only meet your needs, he will do it in glorious fashion through the riches that come through Christ Jesus. And God is offering us glorious riches in Christ. And every day we look at that and say, that is trash. What I'd rather have is a little bit of financial security. And we reject the glorious riches promised in Christ for the lying, broken, going away pile of material and financial comfort. And we do it every day. But God promises that if we give, he will give an abundance out of Christ's riches. So what would we rather have, the garbage materialism that the world tells us or the glorious riches in Christ? How is that even a question? But yet we've made it one. And we've made it the central question that most of our hearts fight over. 
daily in secret. Do I want the glorious riches of Christ or do I want the materialistic comforts that I long for? And most of our hearts, sadly enough, mine included, are split on it. We can't get one foot out of here and long for this. And Paul says, Philippians, you gave everything you had, and I can promise you this. God's going to give and meet all your needs. And I may not come back because here I am in jail, being shipwrecked, bit by snakes, slave, all those kind of things. But I will tell you that the glorious riches that God has in store for you are so much better. Look, I can promise you this, that when you give your lives and resources, you can trust, you can trust, right, that God will give you and meet your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Most of us just don't want that. It's a sad reality to wake up to, but that's the truth. So what we've got to do is break our mindset that says, quit letting me believe the lie that somehow the material comfort picture is going to solve all of my emptiness. Instead, God, let me exchange by giving my life away. Let that be worshiped to you and let me bathe in your glorious riches. Because I'll take a full life in Christ over this thing any day of the week. So finally, Paul says this. He wraps it up in verse 20 by saying, To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Basically, what Paul says is that your giving, when you gave your life and you sent Epaphroditus and you gave your resources and you brought all that stuff and you did it in Thessalonica and you did it in Macedonia and you have continually just been a community that gave and gave and gave and gave to the glory be God. He basically says, you know who gets the glory when we give our lives and our resources, not me and not you, but God gets the glory. That You are so generous and you are such a giving community that God is glorified when you give your lives and your resources. Now for us, that's a really important thing to understand because we live in a culture that is dying for attention. We clamor for it. We want people to see us. We want them to know what we have done. Even our sort of giving that we do when we don't want anyone to see, we really want someone to see, right? We need an accolade. We need a thank you. We need a something. Our company's given huge checks for the paper. I literally saw an article not too long ago in the paper where an organization was giving another group a deal, and they had this big presentation. It was a huge check for $150. And I thought, that check costs $150. I've actually priced those for another deal I was doing. They're expensive. You gave more to have that check printed than you gave away. For what? Because the publicity was great. Because we want people to see us give. And when we do that, who gets the glory? You do. And you rob the Lord of what is his. When we give, truly generously give, God is glorified. And that's what Paul's saying to the Philippians. He's saying, man, I'm so grateful for you. Your giving has glorified God because he's provided my needs through you. And so God is good. He doesn't praise the Philippians saying, Philippians, you are great. You are so awesome. You're the best givers ever, man. I wish everybody had you. He says, man, you guys are such good givers that God is so great. And what if the way that we gave our lives and our resources was so, ridiculous, so ridiculously generous that the world looked and said, man, God must be real, or God must be good, 
or God must be powerful. Like, God would receive the glory, not you. Simple thought, but really profound. Because what that tells us is that everything that we do in mind, body, and soul should be for the glory of Christ alone. Period. If you're giving to this community, or any community for that matter, for any other intention except to glorify the Lord, quit. Just quit. Because it's not acceptable, and it's a waste. Give so that God gets the glory, right? And do it for his worship. So when we talk about this and we wrap all these things together, what we learn is this, is that how you give your life and your resources, it actually matters to the Lord. It can be an expression of our worship. And the promise in the middle of that is that God will meet your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That is the promise. And that when we give this way, God receives the glory. He's honored, glorified. The goal of every follower of Christ should be to give their lives and resources in a way so that God gets glorified. It's really that simple. This church is really no different. We long to live in those veins. It's how we think about our life. We don't want one single resource that you have. At first, you haven't given it to the Lord. It's not an expression of worship. And if you're not looking for him to get the glory, we don't want any part of it. The only way we want to survive is through a group of people that have decided to collaborate by putting their resources together like the Philippians to give them away so Jesus is glorified. That's it. It's not a lot more complicated than that for us. We want to pool our broken resources together to joyfully give them away, knowing that God will meet all of our needs and he will be glorified. And if we can't do that, we need to close up shop as a church. Any other collective effort to give is a waste. We want this to be what drives us and want to be what drives you. What we've been telling you over the past three weeks as part of an express, as an expression of our worship is we're going to be offering our pledge cards to the Lord, much as we see Paul talk about here. If you are not a regular attender, a member of this community, then, then please do not feel any need at all to engage in this process. This process is really just a way for us to say, God, I believe that you are real. I believe that you are more than enough for me. How I give my life and my resources matter. I trust that you will meet all my needs in Christ Jesus. And I believe that this community that we're a part of, right, wants you to be glorified. And so we pool our resources to glorify God. And so during our last worship song, as Don and the team comes back up, we're going to encourage you, if you and your family have brought your pledge card or brought, you know, want to write something out there, it doesn't have to be that. Maybe you just want to write a prayer on an envelope or whatever, and just bring it up here and drop it in one of these two boxes and just offer it to the Lord. Not for anybody else to see you, but so that we can actually use this as saying, God, this is an expression of my worship. Now, of course, this isn't the only manner. If you want to take it home and talk it over with your spouse or whatever, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, we're... We will take these forever, so um, it's not just a one day and miss the window. But, um, but really what we're just trying to do is trying to be a very tangible way of saying, God, I want my offering of my lives and resources to be an expression of worship. I just do. I want it to glorify you. And so during worship, I'm going to offer what is rightfully yours to you, right, as a way of worshiping you. And that's what it boils down to. So as the, the team leads us in worship, I'm going to close in prayer. team leads us in worship. As you feel led or called, I just invite you to come down as a family or as an individual and, and drop it in the box. And then just run back, head back to your seat, continue standing, and we'll close our time at this expression of worship this morning. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you are so, so, so good. I thank you that you are the meter of all of our needs. And not needs in terms of how we define them, but needs in terms of your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And God, it really does grieve my heart how many days of the week I wake up and I exchange what you want to give me, your glorious riches in Christ, 
for the materialistic lies of a world that tells me what my definition should be. Every day. And every day in my heart, I fight that collective battle. And God, that grieves me. Lord, I want to believe and trust that you are more than enough and that you will meet my needs according to your glorious riches. And I believe that for this community. I believe that what you've called us to, you will sustain us to, you will send us out, you will meet our needs. But God, I want to do it in a way in which you receive all the glory. That we would pool our resources because it matters to you. That we would offer them as an expression of worship. That we would believe that you would meet our needs in Christ Jesus. And that you alone would be glorified. That's the criteria. That's it. So Lord, help us be that church. Help us be that community that drives that way. Lord, we pray that as we close our time in worship, you would be exalted and glorified. This little thing that we do is really not about anything else except us worshiping you. And if we bring those things with any other heart, God, I believe they're detestable to you, so break that in us. God, let it be acceptable and pleasing and fragrant to you because we brought it with the right heart. Lord, hear our cries. We close our time in worship, and as we offer your tithes and our offerings to you as an expression of our cry to see Jesus made known. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.